Hi, you're listening to another message from Sunny Hill Church. Our prayer is that these messages encourage, empower, edify, and equip you to live for Christ in 2023. Be blessed as you listen in. I love just this opportunity to get into God's Word together. Today I'm going to be asking the question, can a man change? Can a man change? Now, uh, you know, some of you wives might go, no, they cannot change. So I maybe need to just make you aware that I mean more generally, can humans change? Can people change? It's an important question to consider. Uh, Put your hand up if you originate from the Midlands. Okay, I see one. I know there's one in the house. Aaron's not putting his hand up, but Aaron, the director of Youth for Christ Dorset over there, he is from the Midlands. I grew up with that chav over there. Um, and um, our friendship goes a long way back. But I also knew that there's Dave over there. Uh, just raise your hand, Dave. And Gemma, you're from the Midlands too? Yeah, I grew up in Kettering. Kettering. I've never heard of that in my life. What's that? That don't count. I mean like proper black country Midlands, none of that stuff, right? Now, believe it or not, you've just witnessed a unicorn moment this morning because you've just seen three and a half (laughs) Midlanders outside of the Midlands together. You don't realize how amazing that is. There's an unspoken rule if you're from the Midlands and it's don't leave the Midlands. It's very rare that a Midlander goes much further than Coventry, to be honest. Or, in fact, I've got a couple of friends, uh, Kev and Mark, uh, who are from the Midlands, and I remember the, the, the first time they visited me when I was at Moreland's College, they had like a panic attack. As soon as they got to Bournemouth, they were like, we are too far from home. <laughs> they were supposed to be visiting for four nights. They left after one night because it was just too overwhelming for them. They were like, we can't be here anymore. It's like, I don't know, they breathe a different oxygen supply or something. And um, yeah, I don't don't know what it is, but generally Midlanders are just, you know, gravitate towards Midlands. So the fact that you've got three and a half here this morning, I mean, it is a unicorn moment. I went to one church a, uh, a little while ago. And this guy heard that there was a Midlander preaching and he was excited because he was from the Midlands too. And he was almost looking forward to having another Midlander because they're about 300 miles away from the Midlands. He was so excited that when I walked through the door, he came up to me and he says, are you from the Midlands? I was like, yeah, I am. And the thing is, as soon as I talk, like, I try to be as posh as possible. Now, you probably didn't realize I was from the Midlands, probably. Although my kids always remind me that I cannot speak proper English, okay? Um, That's because they're posh Southerners. It's so annoying, okay? And uh, he comes up to me, and as soon as I start talking with the Midlander, I, I, I kind of dip back into Midlands talk. And so I start talking like that as well. And so he says, you're from the Midlands, mate? I'm like, yeah, I am. And he's like, oh, whereabouts? And I'm like, oh, I'm from Willanore. And he says, oh, no way. I was from Solihull. And now the thing is, I'm like thinking, well, that's the posh bit, really. So that doesn't really count. <laughs> there is a posh bit in the Midlands, OK? And um, it, it's crazy, because he goes, this is what he says to me. He said, my name used to be Wayne. I was like, used to be? He's like, yeah, used to be Wayne. I was like, all right, you changed it, did you? And he was like, yeah, they like it. I was like, what's it now? He goes, Alan. (laughs) I was like, dude, you missed a moment. Of all the names you could have chosen, (laughs) you 
go for that change from Wayne to Alan. I don't know, I'm, I'm just saying that if that was me, I would, have, I would have gone to town. If I changed my name, I would go big. Like, I might even go Goliath. I'm not lying. Like, I was thinking, what would I call myself? If I could choose any name. I like something like Enigma. <laughs> you know that 90s show, Gladiators, where they all had cool names like The Wolf and Shadow. I'd maybe go something like that. Shadow would be cool. Shadow Bird. That's a bit weird. Enigma or Destiny or something. Destiny Bird. Either way, I, I digress. Now, obviously, he had his reasons. I think, uh, I don't know what they were, but um, obviously, if you're called Alan, it's a great name. I'm not kind of mocking it. I'm just saying, let's be a bit more adventurous than Alan. If we're going to change our name legally from Wayne, let's go to something greater. Um, but it's an interesting thing, because obviously, names say a lot. And maybe we think if we can just change some kind of peripheral things, maybe some modify some behavioral things about our life, then... Yes, we can change, but I'm, I'm actually talking a lot deeper than that this morning. I mean, can you actually know a soul transformation? Can you actually know something shifting and changing dramatically on the inside? There's three Bible verses I just want to show you this morning that if you believe them, have the power and the potential to change your life. I've already kind of referenced one of them this morning. Verse 8, in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that whilst we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So even whilst we were still undeserving, even before we had turned one iota towards Jesus, God's heart was already towards us. And God loved us enough to send his one and only son, even whilst we were not interested in him at all. The second verse is this in 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Like, what, what, what we're reading here is this overhaul transformation. And if you decode the Greek here that the author is using, you'll read that we're not talking about a little upgrade. We're talking about a completely different creation. Not just creation 2.0, but something completely different, completely new, completely overhauled. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says... We are God's handiwork, creating Christ Jesus to do good's work, good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Like even, even before you were born, God already had something on your life. That if you accepted Jesus as your Savior, He would do profound, unbelievably amazing things through you because He prepared amazing works for you to do in advance of you even existing. I mean, it's, it's kind of cre crazy, these three verses, but they're all written by the same author. And that author is the Apostle Paul. And uh, it's kind of interesting because Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, but these are in three different letters to three different groups of people, yet Paul just really captures something in these three verses of the love of God, the work of Christ, and the potential of humanity. I think one of the biggest questions we do ask is, can a person really change? I, I don't know whether you get disenfranchised with yourself sometimes, but sometimes you just think, is it possible for us to truly change? I was uh, reading uh, this uh, last week an article, an amazing article, about the inventor of dynamite. Um, kind of a, a, a very entrepreneurial, um, innovative guy. Um, 
invented dynamite. I can't remember exactly what the chemical is that he created, something like nitroglycerine, which is like a liquid paste and has huge explosive potential. And when he invented it, the purpose of it in his mind was that it would really advance the mining industry. Whereas historically, they would have to take like a chisel and a hammer and do things almost caveman style. In the late 1800s, uh, this guy, Alfred Nobel, or Nobel, if you like, invented this thing called dynamite, and you could put it into a small place, and, and the energy that it would create, the explosive energy that it would create, would literally transform landscapes. It would blow, blow rocks apart. And <coughs> this guy, obviously, was a very wealthy man very wealthy, because this advanced the mining industry somewhat. But unfortunately, people also saw the potential in this creation to be useful way beyond the mining industry, that actually it could be used in warfare, that actually you could cause great decimation and, and devastation to cities and peoples by using dynamite. It can achieve in one second what maybe it would take 100 bullets to achieve. And so as a result, this man came extremely wealthy, um, largely because it's the early stages of the military-industrial complex, that there was money in war. And um, what's interesting about this guy is he had a wake-up moment where the press were reporting on his death, even though he was alive. Like, they, uh, his brother Ludwig passed away, and the press got their wires crossed, and they thought it was Alfred Nobel who died. And so one morning, he's sitting down for breakfast, just imagine this, right, eating his breakfast, doing his daily custom where he gets the newspaper, looks at the obituaries, right, and sees his name there. I mean, just imagine seeing your name in the obituaries. I remember one time, there was this amazing woman uh, called Kate, she's now with the Lord, um, uh, an amazing old woman. Um, we had her funeral, when was it, Teresa? Like a couple of months ago, maybe. But I remember one time walking into her flat. It was over the road from our old church building in Parkstone. And uh, she was probably like 95 at the time. And every day she would have a cup of tea and look at the obituaries. Right? And, and I said, um, I walk in one day. I said, what are you doing, Kate? And she says, oh, I'm reading the obituaries. She says, I'm trying to see what friends have gone. I'm like, that's depressing. I said, you're depressing, Kate. And she said, no, I'm competitive. <laughs> I'm like, fair play. But imagine waking up and looking at a bitch and seeing your name. Now, the thing that Alfred also saw was the fact that like, when he saw his obituary, what they wrote of him was this. Alfred Noble, finally the merchant of death has died. And it's a wake-up moment. He had an insight in this instance to what his legacy would be. Like, do I really want to be remembered as being a merchant of death? And so this radically challenged his future. He decided that before he died, he would go about changing his legacy. How did he do it? He took all of his wealth, he put it into a fund, and he created some awards that were given every year for people who had done humanitarian things, things that kind of promoted peace rather than conflict and war. And that's where we get the Nobel Peace Prize. That actually, he had this wake-up moment before his time, and he realized that even though he, he couldn't change how he started in life, he could change how he ended in life. And so he obviously, I mean, we know now of the Nobel Peace Prize, it's a very well-known, prestigious award to receive, and only a handful of people receive it every year for advancing peace in different uh, factors and areas of society. And so like you could say, did, did he change? Well, I don't know if he changed, but he changed his memory how people would remember him. 
Well, today, I want us to think about, can we change? Can we really change? And I don't just mean, can we change our name? Or can we change some of the behaviors? Or can we do some nice things so that people remember us more fondly? Rather, can we actually change? And to do that, we're going to look at Acts chapter 9. We're continuing our Acts series. And we are greeted with a man, or by a man, called Saul. So where we are now in the book is we have seen Stephen martyred. And we have also seen, uh, meet, met Simon the sorcerer, and we have also seen Philip um, minister to a eunuch. Uh, Sophie did a brilliant message on that a couple of weeks ago. Well, today we're in Acts 9, and we are met with this guy called Saul. Now, for those of you in the know, you know who Saul was. But for those of you who are not in the know, let me just tell you, he was the church's worst nightmare. Up until this point, the church had experienced a kind of measure of favor and a measure of fruitfulness But now they're about to encounter Saul, and encountering Saul was like meeting a brick wall. Saul was anti-Christ and anti-church. He hated the church. Why? Because he was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was about championing the Jewish traditions, and he saw the church undoing these Jewish traditions. He saw Jesus as a very real threat to his way of life, and actually to his identity. And so because he had some influence in the the Roman sphere, uh, because he did work for Rome, actually he was able to go about and persecute the church. And when I say persecute the church, I don't just mean make a placard that says the church is rubbish outside the doors, but rather gather up believers and imprison believers, and then even be involved in the martyrdom and execution of believers. In fact, we first encounter him When it came to Stephen, Stephen, this glorious, godly man, really it was Saul that gave consent to his death. Saul was behind Stephen's death. And we meet him today. And I just want to pick up the story in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Look at what it says. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. So what he's trying to do is intercept some communications, get some intel so that he knows exactly where the believers are, when they meet, where they meet, and who the leaders are. Um, So he asked for some letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, that's the church, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So that was his intention, verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly, everyone say suddenly, Suddenly, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Verse 5. Just imagine Saul on the floor, kind of overwhelmed by the light. He's like, who are you? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus Whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. So Saul in this moment, this church aggressor and persecutor, this Christian executor, is encountering the presence of Jesus. And Jesus is speaking with him. Verse 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see 
nothing. Like temporary blindness came upon Saul. After seeing this glorious light of Christ, temporary blindness comes upon Saul. And it's the Lord's doing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. So there's a believer in Damascus. And the Lord speaks to Ananias, says, Ananias. Ananias says, yes, Lord. The Lord told him, this is crazy, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. Just think about this for a moment. Saul represented the church's worst Nightmare. I I don't know how to make this more kind of significant to our understanding of this moment. But if I was to say the leader of Hamas, or maybe the leader of ISIS, one of the, the captains, the chief of ISIS, let's say was coming to England to cause damage, and then the Lord coming to you in your dream and saying, right, I've been speaking with this man. And I want you to go knock on that door. I'd be like, second opinion? (laughs) Any other? Anyone else want to do that one? I mean, I love church. I love the worship. I love the preaching. I like playing music and like seeing my mates. But that stuff's real. Like, surely it's going to be someone else. Just imagine Ananias, Ananias' response to that. (laughs) In verse 12... In a vision, this is what this guy sees. This is what Saul is saying. He has seen a man named Ananias. In other words, the Lord in his providence has already determined it. Like there ain't no, ain't no U-turn in this plan. Like this guy, as I say, the leader of Hamas, Muhammad, let's just say, Muhammad, he's waiting for a man called Dom. Well, I know there's more Doms in the kingdom than just this one, Lord. Send him or something. It's pretty wild. (laughs) I like it because we get a little bit of an insight. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. I'd say the only advantage I've got in front of this nutcase is that he can't see me. (laughs) I ain't laying hands on him. I'll lead him to Jesus and then I'll lay hands on him, right? I'm ducking and diving all over the room. Verse 13. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man. Of course, like, Saul was renowned. Of course, the church, like, he was, he was on the watch list. Like, this guy was severe. He says, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. <laughs> it's not like God is, like, inviting counsel. Oh, yeah, good point, yeah. Yeah, true, actually. It's a horrible situation. I'm putting you in here. The Lord doesn't really indulge Ananias' concerns. The Lord is just like, go. Now listen to this. This is so cool. This man, this man Saul, he's my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. See, until this point, the church's impact hadn't really gone beyond Jerusalem. 
hadn't really gone beyond Jewish territory. It was only Jews who were getting saved and coming into the kingdom. And that's amazing and that's significant. But let me tell you, the reason that we are here in Paul in Dorset is the legacy of the Apostle Paul, who actually, who actually left Jewish territory to go and reach people who had no context of who this Jehovah was. You see, ultimately, as Christians, actually up to the end of the Old Testament, we're with the Jews. Like Christianity, if you like, is the, the, the next stage beyond Judaism. We worship the same God as the Jews, but the Jews don't acknowledge Jesus as their Savior. That's why we must be praying for Israel during this time. Because our heart is that they would come into a living revelation of who Jesus is. Our desire is that you've done it before in the early church where many Jews came to salvation and religious leaders and all this stuff. But the reason we're here is because of the Apostle Paul's ministry who went to the Gentiles, in other words, the non-Jews. And of all the people God could have chosen to fulfill this mandate, God looked down, saw this crazy Jewish zealot who was imprisoning believers, killing Christians and said, that's my man. That's the one I'm going to use. I mean, it is so unbelievable that even Ananias is struggling to conceive it. It's like, well, seriously. In fact, you read on in this passage and you see even the church didn't accept it at first because the transformation was too great. It was too irrational. It was too illogical. I mean, lots of the church even thought he's just pretending so that he can find out all the intelligence of the church. He can find out where everybody meets, and he's going to switch the switch, and then he's going to go after us. It's crazy. But go, the Lord says, this is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And then listen to this. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. I mean, seriously. Doesn't really feel like a mantle you want, does it? Saul, who has been bringing suffering to the church, is now going to experience the same suffering for the name of Jesus. Verse 17, then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, I mean, just imagine the confidence here. Sometimes we read the Bible and we just go, yep, yep, I know that story. This is mental. Listen, he says, he placed his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Paul, or Saul, sorry, Saul lost his sight but in this moment, after receiving Christ and receiving the Holy Spirit, got vision. You understand the difference, right? The Lord took something away, probably something that spoke to Saul's pragmatism and rationale and logic, his sight, show me stuff and I'll believe it kind of thing. But in his blindness, was just dependent on this servant coming, Ananias, and laying hands on him. And the sight was restored. But now Saul had vision, not just sight. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Jerusalem, verse 20. At once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. 
Imagine that. In fact, actually, you, there's, there's actually loads of leaders in ISIS who have bowed the knee to Christ and who are now missionaries in the Middle East. I mean, it's unreal, some of the stuff that God is doing over there. But listen to this, verse 21. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. The chosen instrument. Chosen by God. Chosen by God. It's a story of transformation. It's a story, really, that I hope fills you with hope. That person who you may think is beyond the grip of God is not beyond the grip of God. That person that maybe you have given up on is not beyond the pursuit of God. Maybe you're even here today feeling like you have made too many mistakes or maybe that you have just time and time again resisted God. Listen, even you are not beyond the grip of grace today. That's what this passage really speaks to us. The message is essentially nobody is beyond a new story. Nobody is unreachable. Nobody is beyond a different legacy. There's three big lessons that I'm just going to breeze over here. But the first thing, I think, is this. In Christ, every saint has a past and every sinner has a future. You know, if you know Jesus as your saviour, you're a saint. Congratulations. Amazing. You're a saint. But the truth is, every saint in this room right now has a past. There was a time when you weren't walking with Jesus. There was a time where you didn't know Jesus as your personal saviour. There was a time when you were lost and without hope. Because every saint has a past. But glory to God, every sinner who is in the dark right now, in Christ, can have a future. Every person who has resisted God, rebelled against God, who is kind of just doing their own thing, just like, whatever, God, you can do one. Like, I don't need you in my life. Even that person in Christ has a future. The second observation I want to make is this. God can suddenly interrupt your life. We're a God who is, uh, we worship a God who is a suddenly God. Last week, Ruth spoke, and it was brilliant. She was talking about the Holy Spirit, and she said, suddenly the Holy Spirit came. Well, in the same way, we read in this passage that Paul, uh, Saul, sorry, was going about business on the road to Damascus, and suddenly, suddenly Jesus showed up. Suddenly Jesus met with Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul wasn't even looking for it. Saul was going about his business, about his agenda. And then out of nowhere, Jesus showed up. You know, this is a really helpful thing for us to understand that, like, it only takes one minute to bow the knee to Christ. That person who maybe feel like they're so far gone, it only takes one moment to say, Jesus, come and be Lord of my life. Even you today, like I say, maybe you feel distant from God. It only takes one moment, and we worship a suddenly God. A God who suddenly shows up. I've shared my testimony a few times, but I was 17 years old, and the only thing I had vision for was to be a rock star. That was the dream. And I go to this meeting with my friend, and the Holy Spirit had other plans. And it was a suddenly moment. 
And it was like a Monday night. So on the Sunday, I wasn't walking with Jesus, but by Tuesday morning, Jesus was my everything. Like, and, and, and sometimes it's easy for me to forget this, that every saint has a past. That until that moment, I was doing things I shouldn't be doing. I, I was full tilt rebellion. On the, on the Sunday night, I was doing my own thing. You've just got to take my word for it. But by Tuesday morning, like now it was about, okay, Jesus, I want to serve you with my life. And the prophetic word that God gave me through somebody was to go to Bible college. Like, it's almost, it's almost ridiculous. I wanted to be a rock star. I ended up going to Bible college. It's kind of illogical. But we worship a God who suddenly interrupts lives. I mean, maybe you think about it. Maybe some of you slowly, gradually came into the kingdom. But I imagine a lot of you in here, it was a suddenly moment where God encountered you on your road to Damascus. And the third observation, and it's probably the most important observation that I want to say this morning, is that a man can change. But he cannot change himself. Our best attempts at transformation is just modifying behavior. Intentionally being a slightly nicer person. And I encourage that some of you should do that. <laughs> you know, there are some things within your control that you can intentionally do in terms of adopting behaviors that will bless other people. That's a good thing. But actually, it's not enough. Because actually, it's, it would be better to say, can a man change? Well, he has to. I mean, it's not really optional. If you want to know life beyond this life, you have to change. But glory be to God, it's not about changing the things I do. It's not even about changing the things I say. Those things flow from the change I'm talking about. The change I'm talking about is being made new in Christ. Calling on the name of Jesus. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old has gone, the new is here. So, if you become a Christian, if you give your life to Jesus and you don't become a nicer person, I would question, did you really give your life to Jesus? But you can become the nicest person in the world and still not know Jesus. Because actually, it's not a case, can a man change? It's actually a man needs to change. We need to change. Right now, when we are outside of relationship with Christ, if you like, there is a gap between me and God. And when God sees me, what he sees is my sin. He sees my unrighteousness. He sees my rebellion. That's what he sees. And that's why Paul, in the New Testament, says, if anyone is in Christ, because as soon as I come into Christ, what God now sees is different. When God looks at me, he doesn't see Dom, the loser, who's always making mistakes. He sees Jesus' righteousness. That's essentially the gospel. That like, and it's illogical, and we've sung about it today, like reckless love. Like it's illogical, it's irrational, it's unreasonable. But the whole point is this, is that I can live my life making mistake upon mistake, doing everything. I can, I can worship Satan. <clears throat> I can... I can pursue the lust of the flesh. I can be mean-spirited to people. I can even kill people, right? 
And then I come to the cross. And Jesus, who lived a perfect life, a totally law-abiding, perfect life, meets me at the cross. And at the cross, there's this exchange where Jesus says, here is my righteousness, give me your sin. And I walk on beyond that point, and now I am cloaked in the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus dies on the cross with my sin. That's, that's how change is essentially possible. I come into a moment of revelation, but even more than that, repentance, because I'm like, oh, I'm broken. I'm so broken. But until that point, I didn't realize how broken I was. So can a man change? Yes, he can. But he cannot change himself. I want to ask Ben to come up on the keys. I've got six minutes to land this plane. So, uh, Ben, can you come and um, bring accountability to me, please? That would be great. <coughs> There's something really significant in this passage, actually. Something really significant in this passage is that, and it's, it's hard for us to conceive, but even when Saul, listen to this, it's important we understand this, even when Saul was like killing Christians and aggressively persecuting the church, right? This is crazy. Even then, God loved him. Even then. Like, it feels like so ridiculous. Like, in a human propensity, we kind of return love for love. That when someone loves me, I reciprocate that love back because I feel loved and valued. So, therefore, why would I not want to come into that mutual agreement? Saul was proactively trying to kill Jesus again. And even in that place, God loved him. And you can say, well, did God really love him or was God just trying to use him as a tool for his kingdom? Well, verse 4, we kind of breezed over it, but it says this. Saul fell to the ground. This is when he has this suddenly moment. And he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And sometimes when you read stuff like that, you're going like, like, has the Lord got a speech impediment? Like, is it like a stutter? Like, Saul, Saul. Saul. Like, it wasn't like a Saul? Oh, it is you. Saul. It, it's a voice of authority. Saul. Saul. Actually, when you read the scriptures, what's interesting is you, you only see this happen a handful of times. A handful of times. Less than 20, I think. Like, in the Old Testament... You've got the moment where Abraham is taking Isaac up the mountain and Abraham is going to, in obedience to God, slaughter his son. And as Abraham kind of holds the knife up to slaughter his son, a voice comes and the voice is, Abraham, Abraham. It's like when Moses is at the burning bush and the Lord is speaking to Moses through the fire. The word of the Lord is this, Moses. Moses. It's like Elisha, when he's watching Elijah, his mentor, kind of ascend uh, kind of to heaven. Elisha says, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel, 
when David mourned the loss of his son, he cried, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. Even Jesus on the cross said in Aramaic when he breathed his last breath, Eli, Eli, lama saptani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Over and over again we see this. And listen, every time we see it, every time we see it, it's always an expression in the Hebrew tongue of profound personal intimacy. That God comes to Saul and says, Saul, Saul. It's like, Saul, I love you, is really what it means. Saul, I know you. Saul, I have a plan for you. Saul, I love you. Returning to the place we began with Paul, the author. And those of you who are in the know, you know. But Paul wrote this, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. Ephesians 2.10 We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good work, which God prepared in advance for us to do. These were written by Paul. Paul, if you like, is the most significant figure in the Christian faith after Christ. Responsible for a third of the New Testament, writing like 13 or 14 letters, like impacting nations and continents and cities, raising leaders, edifying, equipping and empowering Christians. Like Paul is a legend of the faith. But for those of you who don't know, Paul wasn't always Paul. (laughs) In the same way, Alan wasn't always Alan. Paul started his life as Saul. Saul, that guy we've been looking at today, this persecutor of the faith. Saul, this man who wanted to kill Christians, ultimately goes on and becomes Paul, the planter of churches, the changer of nations, the preacher of the gospel, the life impactor, the God glorifier, the demon slayer. I mean, I could go on. Same man, yet changed. I've been thinking a lot about that because those three verses that we've looked at make so much more sense when you understand where Paul came from. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm thinking as, as Paul wrote that to the Roman church, he's probably got tears in his eyes because he knows this firsthand. Whilst I was not interested, he demonstrated his love for me in this. Whilst I was dead and lost, Christ died for me. You know, I'm just thinking that like when Paul is writing 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. I'm just thinking Paul again just said, this is me. This is my story. I have been made new in Christ. It's not just faithful speaking or like hopeful positivity. It's lived experience through this man, Paul, when he wrote, for we are God's handiwork created in Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Paul is thinking of the moment where he was on the road to Damascus, advancing this evil agenda to wipe out the church, yet he's saying, but God had prepared something different for me. He had a different map for me, a different plan for me. 
It's the same man, yet different. I was just thinking about this. Maybe you don't know Jesus today as your Savior. And I don't really know how to conclude this well. But just listen to this sentiment. Listen. And close your eyes, just with me in this moment. Listen. And, and maybe if you have been walking with Jesus for some time, but maybe you've just made a real hash of it. Listen, even today, he's saying to you, Saul, Saul. Or maybe your name's Jonathan. Jonathan, Jonathan. Helen, Helen. Whatever your name is, he's saying it to you now. Listen to this. Until you believe God loves the Saul inside of you, you will never discover the Paul inside of you. Until you believe God loves the soul inside of you, you will never discover the Paul inside of you. Until you believe that God loves you at your worst, you will never receive that actually God can transform you into being your best. There's just this revelation that needs to happen of God's love that is crazy, illogical, reckless, unbelievable, too good to be true. You know, you hear it said in the workplace or in the world, if it's too good to be true, it's because it usually is. Well, not with the gospel. Not with the gospel. It is too good to be true. Yet Jesus undergirded that whole sense of forgiveness and grace in the work on the cross. And he did it when you were still in sin. Before you made one step towards him, let me tell you, he walked all the way to the cross. And so my prayer this morning is simply that you would have a suddenly moment and just receive that love that God loves the soul in me. Now, obviously, he doesn't want me to remain a soul. But even while I'm lost, even while I'm in the dark, even when I'm in the wild, God is for me. And he wants, me to, he wants, he wants to bring me to a place of decision. You could say that like Saul was the BC before Christ and Paul was the AD, the after decision. You know, and there's important to say that like as you give your life to Christ, there is this transformation on the inside, this overhaul of who we are. And it may not mean that all of a sudden we become like Mother Teresa by the following day. But there's a sense that as that transformation has happened on the inside of us, that actually now, well, as it says in Hebrews, by one sacrifice, he has made holy forever those who are being made holy. I have been forgiven. I have been redeemed. I have now been made new. And now my future is about living, living up to that, not just living up to that, allowing the reality of that to change me from the inside out.